Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast, the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and it's my pleasure today to welcome Sarah Young, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Global Health at Northwestern University, where she also directs work on water insecurity for the university's Center for Water Research. Sarah's work focuses on issues related to nutrition, water, and health, with a particular focus on maternal and child health, along with HIV AIDS treatment outcomes in Kenya and Tanzania in East Africa. Through her work on water insecurity, Sarah has collaborated with others to develop scales or indicators for measuring and better understanding how water is used and thought about at the household level. Now, for several decades, the World Health Organization and UNICEF have gathered data about water supply, sanitation, and hygiene through what's called the Joint Monitoring Program, or JMP. And the JMP uses surveys and government reported data to assess what percentage of urban and rural populations have access to an improved water source or basic or even shared sanitation facilities. Now, the data gathered is really meant to be consistent across countries and regions and ideally help provide policymakers with a sense of how countries are progressing toward meeting the global water and sanitation targets In Sustainable Development Goal 6, which is focused on ensuring availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. But as Sarah and others have noted, there's really considerable subnational variation in those data sources, as well as many subtleties that are not always captured. So these observations led Sarah to work with others on the development of what are called the WISE scales, so Household Water Insecurity Experiences, or HYs, and Individual Water Insecurity Experiences, or IYs, which supplement and provide nuanced understanding of how individuals and families think about and manage water challenges. Now, in early July, the JMP released a new report looking at progress on household drinking water and sanitation between 2000 and 2022, with a special focus on gender issues. And while there's certainly good news in the sense that over the 22-year period, more than 2 billion people gained access to safely managed drinking water, the report notes that many countries are really not on track to meet the SDGs by 2030, and some, a smaller number but still significant, are actually regressing when it comes to ensuring access to water and sanitation. And there is a large number of countries, including high-income countries, that fail to gather comparable data about sanitation and hygiene at all. So we're here today to talk about water, sanitation, and hygiene, WASH issues in particular, how to gather data about water, sanitation, and hygiene as they relate to health, and why it's important to understand the intersection of ideas about gender and gender roles when it comes to WASH, even if it's difficult or challenging to gather that information. Sarah Young, thank you for joining me today. 
An absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So let's start with the basics. We're talking about water, sanitation, and hygiene services. Hygiene certainly seems well-connected to the health field. But when we talk about water and sanitation, we might think about environmental services or engineering rather than health. And then when you look at the SDGs, the WASH SDG is actually separate from the one on health, which is SDG 3, and the WASH one is SDG 6. So what do WASH issues have to do with health? And why are the World Health Organization and UNICEF gathering this data? You really nailed it on the head that we have silos in how we think about different resources. So there's the food SDG and there's the water SDG and there's the health SDG. They are deeply interconnected. And one of the draws to me for studying water is that if you care about water, you should measure water. But if you care about food security, you should be understanding water. And if you care about education, you should be understanding how um, children are able or not to access water. So water flows throughout all of the SDGs. So, you know, when you think about the SDGs, especially when we think about gender and water in particular, there's the gender SDG. And, you know, you can argue that by improving gender equity, we improve access to water, sanitation and hygiene. But also, if we improve access to water, sanitation and hygiene, we may improve gender equity. How do we begin to think about measuring that interrelationship between the two? In order to understand the relationships very rigorously between water and gender, we need to measure water. We need to understand what's happening with water at the level of the individual so we can see it's called gender disaggregated data. So we understand what is happening with women and water. You mentioned the new JMP report, and one of my favorite figures in that report is the one where we see the burden of water acquisition on women. We don't have that data for all the countries, but in the like 30 or 40 that it is, you can see women are predominantly responsible for water acquisition. I mean, water and women go hand in hand in so many ways, both in terms of the acquisition, as we see in those figures, but also in terms of a lot of women's responsibilities are very water intensive, like cooking and washing the babies and laundry, all of that stuff. So women are dealing more with water. And then women have differential hygiene needs. For example, when you're having your period, you just need more water. So uh, water flows through women in many ways, but we don't exactly know how it is affecting women because all of the water data that we have, well, most of the water data that we have is not gender disaggregated. It's measured at the household level or the county or the national level. So as we look at some of the official data and surveys that go into the data that contributes to the JMP report, we know that the report this year points out that a lot of the high income countries just are not gathering data on hygiene, for example. And the kind of data that the lower income countries or the middle income countries is gathering is is different. And so it's really hard to kind of put together a good picture of how access to you know, basic or improved services is changing over time. You and your colleagues have you know, worked on developing a series of scales to really kind of go beyond some of those official numbers, I think, to, to understand the experience of managing water. Can you say a little bit about that process of developing those scales and how you see the information that they provide? You know, what does that add to the reports that have been gathered for so long? Yeah, 
I'd be happy to. And to do that, I'm just going to like tell a little story, like take you back 10 years. Uh, I was a baby assistant professor working in Kenya, and I had a, a large grant from the National Institutes of Health to understand the role of food insecurity in the first thousand days. So the first thousand days referred to the year prior to delivery and the two years postpartum. And I'm trained in nutrition and anthropology. So with my nutrition hat on, we know very well how to measure food insecurity. Experiences, food insecurity is not hunger, it's worry about food, it's lower diet quality, it's skipping meals. And that's an indicator for SDG2. So experiences of food insecurity. We know how to measure it. There are eight items. They work the same globally. We can do that. With my anthropology hat on, I wanted to make sure I was asking women about what they cared about. And so we did interviews, photo elicitations, interviews, the technical term where you give them cameras and I say, take pictures of that which influences how you feed your baby. And to my great surprise, pictures of water were rife throughout all of those photos and, and did not see that coming, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but I was eager to pay attention to what women were telling me. So I ran to the literature to see like, okay, how is how is water being measured? How is water security being measured? And, you know, crash course in, in looking at the indicators. Turns out we're very good at measuring things that we can see. So we can evaluate how much surface water there is. And then we can talk about how many cubic meters per capita there are. We're also very good at measuring infrastructure. I mean, the JMP is a measure, the drinking water ladder is a measure of access to drinking water services. And that was also useful. But when I'm looking at these photos, for example, there's this one of a woman, she's going to fetch water. She's very pregnant and she's going to fetch water with a heavy jerry can. And there's her mother-in-law standing kind of in the background next to a large tank, a water tank, this is called a sim tank. The mother-in-law was not letting her use that water. So she needed to go and, and fetch water and she ended up going into premature labor. Not good stuff happened. And I'm thinking like, how do we capture that? So Lake Victoria is right there. I mean, there is water in Kenya and she had infrastructure at her house, but she wasn't able to use it for that which she needed and it had a lot of really important consequences for her. And She's not alone. I mean, there are so many ways that I learned that water was shaping women's health and well-being from like being physically abused when water was not in the house to having to leave the baby to go fetch the water very far away. So exclusive breastfeeding wasn't possible. Just so far reaching. And I thought like, well, we have to measure people's experiences. Infrastructure is just not enough. And so first we, we made a, a scale that was appropriate for Kenya to measure people's experiences. But the hallmark of anthropology is comparisons. And I was, you know, I'm deeply influenced by uh, experiential measures of food insecurity. I mean, those have transformed how we think about food and nutrition and how we are tracking progress. But I basically you know, took a page from the playbook of the food insecurity experiences measurements and translated those to the water sector. And, and it certainly wasn't me myself. It was a large team of collaborators who developed the household water insecurity experience scale. That was the first one. But to your point about gender, if you're measuring, I mean, Mark Twain says, or it's either attributed to him or misattributed to him, that whiskey's for drinking and water is for fighting. Water is a hot topic. And just like food, it's not always equally distributed, even within a household. And so household gives us a lot of context, but there still can be a lot of variation within a household. So a few years after the household water and security experiences scale was completed, Gallup got in touch with me and said, like, we should put this in the Gallup World Poll. And I said, I love that idea. Let's put this in the Gallup World Poll. And another parallel there, I mean, that's 
then Gallup collects the data for the food insecurity experiences um, scale. So we adapted the scale to go from measuring at the household level to the individual level. But the stems of the items are the same. They both capture emotional aspects of water. So worry, shame, but also consumption. So, I mean, water is similar to food in that we cook with it and we drink it. Water is different from food in that we also use it to, for example, wash our hands and wash our bodies. So it touches on, on those aspects as well. It takes three minutes and it's 12 items. And it's really providing a very complementary picture to existing indicators. I mean, the JMP is our best picture of what's happening globally with drinking water. It's so valuable. And I'm so glad that we have these data. And I would say that we need to have a more holistic picture of, of what's happening with water in, in terms of those other experiences that I mentioned that are so fundamental to nutrition, mental health, physical health, gender equity. We need a more holistic picture and we need a little bit higher resolution. And that entails measuring it at the level of the individual. So your the story about the, the woman whose mother-in-law was standing right behind her, you know, in front of the water tank really resonates in so many ways about other aspects of health as well, where there's that power dynamic within the extended family, right? Um, just raised a question for me. I mean, are you able to talk with men as well about their impressions of water? And are there kind of, is that something that the individual scale captures as well? And, you know, how do men in the household kind of perceive some of these power relationships around water that are, I guess, intergenerational? Yeah. So the scales are suitable to mm -hmm. ask of anyone, as far as mm -hmm. we can tell, we've, I'll spare you the blood, sweat, tears, and statistics and theory mm -hmm. that went into the scales, but they work for men and women. Men are happy to answer them and they hold up their equivalent across genders. So that's no problem there. The other way that they're um, equivalent is that so far, I mean, we've worked with Gallup to collect data in many low and middle income countries. So I think we're up to 38 so far, but we also just in 2022 implemented it in the United States and Australia. So we have nationally representative data on water and security into high income countries, it seems to hold up very nicely here in the, for example, in the States where I am right now. And talking about power dynamics is fascinating. And I've learned a lot of about how water is managed and how water is used and how water is allocated. And it, and it really varies. So one of the things that we did is we looked at how water insecurity was different across genders in these 31 countries. And that's a published in Lancet Planetary Health. And there's a figure in there where you can see water insecurity scores, the difference between men and women. And sort of going to like what we know in the water world that women are more water insecure than men, that holds up in some countries. In some countries, there's no difference. And in a couple of countries, men are reporting more experiences of water insecurity than women, which was very surprising and kind of head scratching. I mean, there's two thoughts there. The water acquisition means different things in different places. I mean, I, I can't speak to what it means globally, but I know, for example, in Tanzania and Kenya, it's very much women's work to get water and men do not want to be seen fetching mm -hmm. water. It's the exception that proves the rule when you see a man carrying water. If they have a bicycle or, or a motorcycle, it's more acceptable. And if they're collecting water for a business that they have, that's also okay. But it really has to be an extreme situation for most men. I mean, we can't speak for all men. But it would be, uh, denote a lower status or something. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's like, it's like uh, I don't know, going to buy tampons when you're a guy. The other thing I wanted to say about differences that we're seeing in, in water and security experiences is that the same exposure in women and men can have differential consequences. So just because my husband and I both score a seven, I'm just making this up, because water is like 
my domain because I'm supposed to be doing the laundry and cooking and because I'm supposed to be having a well-groomed children. It can be a lot more stressful for women to experience this than men. And we're seeing really strong relationships, for example, between depression and water insecurity that are bearing out in women, but not in men. So while the experiences may be different or maybe similar, it doesn't mean that the consequences of that exposure are the same across genders. Does that make sense? I think so. So when you talk about, you know, if you had a measurement of seven, that's on a scale out of, is it 20 or 12? There are 12 items. Each item is scored zero, never, up to three for often or always. So the range is 12 times three is 36. Okay. And so women then, based on some of what you've seen, maybe having to work harder or really experience a great deal more stress and energy in order to reach that seven or you know, whatever that measure is than, than a man who is not, doesn't have those same expectations. on Exactly. Okay. And then because the expectations are there, it's much more of like a mental load. I mean, mm-hmm. women talk so much about just, I dream about water. I wake up in the night to like fetch, it's like, it's the mental burden of worrying about this really essential resource. So I want to shift a little bit to sanitation and hygiene. You've mentioned, you know, in part that, really the lack of access to adequate sanitation, both at the school and in the home. If people have to leave home, you know, in the middle of the night to go find a place to use the bathroom, it can expose them to violence, to personal insecurity. We know that sometimes families don't send their daughters to school if there's not an adequate facility. And then on top of all that, the challenge of menstruation, you know, really raises the stakes, you know, in in many cases, both around sanitation and access to water for cleaning and maintaining menstrual hygiene. Now, this report that came out earlier this month at the beginning of July places a special emphasis on menstruation. The JMP tried to gather information across a number of different countries, both around information that males and females have about menstruation and female fertility, but also about the different things that people can do to safely manage their menstruation over the course of a month or over the course of their lifetime. And so I wanted to ask you about that because the report you know, really points out that the data on menstruation are kind of in development, that there are some good indicators, but that there could be a lot more and there could be a lot more awareness, you know, raised among school-aged children, you know, all the way through adults, kind of about the relationship between menstruation and sanitation and hygiene. And so I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the data and what your scales around experience kind of show with respect to menstruation, but also, you know, just your thoughts about what it will really take to kind of mainstream discussion about menstruation in the WASH context and in that SDG context more broadly. One of the things we can do is like believe people's experiences and take time to collect the data. I mean, there is a high level panel report that talks about that we can't manage what we can't measure or what we don't measure and we're missing pieces. I mean, it's not sexy to measure stuff so much, (laughs) but the data need to be there in order for us to see where the problems are and see if we're making impact. And we are early on in measuring anything really related to menstrual hygiene. And and I think there are a few reasons for that. One is that the water sector generally has been dominated by engineers, not to speak ill of engineers, I'm married to one, (laughs) but they're not thinking so much about global health. I mean, and that's changing and it's changing even very rapidly, but we've had a bias towards observable phenomenon. Another thing is women are the ones who menstruate. And so like usually women's issues kind of come up second or third. So there's just the fact that it is a woman's thing. 
But third, it's a stigmatizing thing. I mean, it's embarrassing. It can be very embarrassing to talk about periods and all of the things that can go sideways when you're having your period. And, you know, teenagers, I have one, are embarrassed about everything, even that are things that aren't embarrassing. <laughs> my mere existence is embarrassing <laughs> to my daughter. So then you compound that with something that's private and it gets really hard to talk about. So one of the things that we can do besides just measuring this more is just talking about it more and getting really comfortable talking about periods. So this reminds me a little bit of, I want to say it was maybe 15 years ago or so, when there was a big push around sanitation, as there always are. But, you know, I went to the World Water Week in Stockholm and every other word that people were saying was shit. You know, they just wanted to like get it out there and let's not be embarrassed about talking about it. It shouldn't have to be private. Like, I mean, yes, it's private, but, you know, we need to talk about it and destigmatize. And in the same way, you know, here we are, you know, talking about something that's stigmatized, it's private, it's a women's issue, it's blood, which nobody likes to talk about. And then, you know, it's really all those things together. But the report, you know, I think really points out, and it sounds like some of your work bears this out as well, that, you know, if more people understand and can be, you know, open about providing solutions so that girls can continue to go to school or have the products they need so that they can maintain their life in a normal way, then this benefits all of us in the longer term. Yeah. And I mean, I'm biased now because I'm so enamored of all things wash. But the thing about it is that people don't necessarily think about water all the time. I certainly did not. I was shocked to see how far reaching some of these water issues were for really disparate topics. But I feel like we can use water as a hook to education. So like you might not care about water, but you care about your you know girls attending school, then you have to care about water. You might not care about water, but you care about mental health. Well, there's a huge psychological burden related to water. So by measuring these experiences with wash, with menstrual hygiene and connecting them to outcomes that other sectors care about is I think a very powerful way of getting wash more on everyone's radar. So as you've said, I mean, it really, not just water, but all of the wash issues really kind of connect to and flow through so many of the other SDGs around gender equality, around food security, around personal security and others as well. So I want to come back to this JMP report, you know, a little bit. I mean, it's, its purpose is to continue to gather information about, you know, how countries are, the progress that they're making in terms of reaching universal access to basic drinking water or sanitation by 2030, you know, really kind of fulfilling those SDG information mandates. But, you know, as the report points out, while... In some cases, yes, I mean, over the past two decades, many more people have gotten access to drinking water and sanitation. You know, we have a growing population. And at the same time, there are some places where investments have not kept up and progress has really kind of gone backwards in some ways. The report, you know, really emphasizes that inequalities in the accessibility, availability and quality of drinking water services impact women and men in different ways. What do you think, you know, we've got, it's 2023, it's almost 2024, we've got six years till 2030, but obviously, you know, efforts will continue well beyond 2030 as well. But what do you think it will really take to kind of accelerate progress in addressing the gendered impacts of water sanitation and hygiene? Is it more financing? Is it better governance? Is it bringing uh, more women into policymaking when it comes to WASH? What are kind of the, as we look toward this next six-year period, you know, what are kind of the main things that we really need to be thinking about? Yes, is <laughs> all of those things are needed. But if I 
you're going to make me pick one. <laughs> I would say accountability is probably the most powerful tool that we have. And I hate to say it again, but data ensure accountability. And in fact, Zach Goldsmith is a British foreign minister in the UK at Stockholm World Water Week a couple of years ago was talking about why scales are a way of ensuring accountability. I was glad that he said that, but now I have examples of how they have held people accountable. And if you're interested, I can give you one of those examples. There's some, I call them the ladies of Walgett. They're an Aboriginal community in Australia who are really having problems with food and water in their community. They decided to use the HY scale to measure water insecurity in their community. I wasn't involved with the data collection, but I helped them understand the scale. And they found that the water insecurity in their community in Australia was, I think, 46% or 43%, very, very high. So that was one piece of information. But we had Gallup World Poll data for nationally representative data on, on Australia, and, and that's water and security prevalence there is 1%. And so it's a it stark contrast of disparities within a country. What my Walgett friends did was talk to journalists about this. Journalists covered exactly what was happening and revealed how, you know, what these really horrible problems with water were. That in turn, after the national news coverage, that in turn got policy the Minister of Water, pay attention and act on what these people had asked for, which is to switch the source of their water from boreholes to the river. I mean, so it wasn't just accountability that made that change. It was data and public will and political will and money. I mean, all of those things are necessary. But to make once these things that are kind of invisible, I mean, these women were telling their stories, but Stories don't have the same traction that numbers do for, for policymakers. So once this issue became visible with numbers, it really kind of catalyzed a big change. So that's interesting. I mean, it, it's not a situation where, you know, somebody from the government came in and said, oh, hey, let's gather this information. But this group of women heard about the scale. They said, hey, we want to gather this information ourselves. And then, you know, we're able to use it to kind of raise awareness of the discrepancies and put pressure on, I guess, the provincial authorities and then the national level to create a better situation. Oh, that's great. I was in the state of Nuevo León in Mexico three weeks ago now. I was invited there by the governor of the state because we're now developing this Latin American and the Caribbean Water and Security Experiences Network where lots of activities are happening within that network. But the governor in that state, along with his various ministers, are very aware that water is a huge issue. I don't know if you recall, but there were some major shortages last year, and we're coming up to that time again. Well, this is on the border with the U.S., right? With Between Texas and North That's right. the U.S. And in recognition that water is a, a huge issue, that they're doing great things to get out in front of that by collecting data. So they themselves have made this like signing at the governor's palace. It was really fun. They're in the network now. Mm -hmm. And even better than signing at the governor's palace is that they are now collecting data on, they're using the HY scale in order to track progress and see the impacts of their interventions. So they themselves are using this to essentially hold themselves accountable, which is just wonderful. Well, that's fantastic. And I mean, it sounds like this is also, you know, a scale that not only urban communities can use, but also some of the more rural communities or smaller cities can apply and really be able to kind of see how they compare to other entities within their state or with and of comparable size in other regions. Yeah, it's nice that the, the scales work across scales. 
<laughs> well, Sarah Young, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today about WASH and health and gender and the importance of data in really being able to understand people's experiences and compare those experiences of access to water, sanitation, and hygiene services across households, across communities, and really across countries in order to understand not only where progress is being made, but where more needs to be done. Good luck to you over the course of your summer and sabbatical next year, and look forward to hosting you again as more information from your research comes through. That would be a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.